0: Take your Bibles and open them with me uh, again to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Pick up where we left off uh, last week. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30 and continuing through verse 44 today. Uh, sermon I've titled, Impossible Bread in the Desert Place. Uh, passage is probably subtitled in your Bibles, Jesus Feeds the 5,000. If somebody, if a number of people, I suppose, different folks from different perspectives were going to write a biography of your life, there's probably at least one thing they would all include in your life, probably your death and how it happened. That's usually what happens in most biographies, assuming the person you're writing about has already died. But, but what if somebody were to, what if several people were to write about your life, several people from different perspectives? They'd probably all include your death, but what else in your life might they include? All of them equally agreed upon one one event besides maybe your birth and your death. Well, for the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these biographers of Jesus in the first century, there there was one thing that made it into each of their biographies of Jesus. All of them, of course, write about His death on the cross and His resurrection. But they also, all four, include this passage or the telling of this event, Jesus feeding the 5,000. For some reason... And as we read through the different Gospels, we find that the, the different Gospel writers see different but similar prevailing theological themes uh, revealed about the person of Jesus in this event, but all four Gospel writers include it. So, boy, we ought to pay attention to it, I suppose. It's a really interesting passage as Jesus does this miraculous work of feeding a large group of people. But as Mark tells the story or recounts the story, probably from Peter's recollection to him, we see a number of different themes that come through, uh, perhaps a little bit differently or in a little bit different contrast than we do in some of the other Gospels. As we come to Mark's telling of the feeding of the 5,000, we see this picture of Jesus as a compassionate shepherd who provides the impossible in abundance for his sheep. The same idea, stated a little bit differently, is the main idea of the passage in our time together in God's Word today, that Jesus is the divine shepherd who gives his sheep but they cannot give themselves. This is predominantly what Mark has, kind of at the top, if you will, right at the front of his telling of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, knowing that Jesus fulfills our greatest needs, I hope that this morning we would turn to him to find our sustenance, our provision, our hope, and ultimately our rest So let's turn our attention to this very popular and well-known event in the life of Jesus recorded by all four gospel writers, but uh, let's look at Mark's version of it this morning. I invite you to stand with me as we honor God's Word by reading it. Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark, the gospel writer, missionary partner to Peter the Apostle and later to Paul as well, writes in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this, the Apostles... This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus is the divine shepherd who gives his sheep what they cannot give themselves. This is an interesting passage in Mark's gospel uh, as he recounts or retells one of Jesus' mighty deeds, his miraculous works. In almost every other place in Mark's gospel when Jesus does something like this, we find that everybody around and watching it is astounded or astonished or amazed But interestingly enough, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish, we don't get that response. It's kind of funny. I don't know why I say that. Just to say, the absence of astonishment is astonishing to me. (laughs) Jesus is the divine shepherd we see who gives his sheep, but they cannot give themselves. There's so much in this passage. And I am so tempted to pull it all out to you and and give it all to you. But I'm going to try to stay relatively focused. So, in this passage, we see first of all, that Jesus calls those who carry the gospel to rest. Jesus calls, commands, encourages those who carry the gospel to rest. As Mark picks up here in verse 30 of chapter 6, we find the disciples, or as Mark calls them here, apostles, the sent out ones. They're coming back to Jesus from their short-term, fast-paced mission trip of sorts to report to Jesus everything that had happened. We saw uh, looked a little bit at their their, uh, commissioning in that regard last week. And when they get back, they're excited to report to Jesus everything that they had done and taught, the demons that they cast out of people, the healing that happened, the teaching that they did. And when they get back to Jesus after this trip, they find the crowds that were with Jesus before they left are just as intense and around Jesus when they get back. And they're so busy ministering to this crowd and and helping Jesus that they don't even have time to eat. And Jesus tells them, what you need, brothers is to go to an isolated place and rest a while. Y'all need a break. The word that appears in the translation of the Bible that I usually preach from, the English Standard Version, the word that appears is desolate. In the Christian Standard Bible, CSB, the word is remote. The New International Version, if you're reading there, a quiet place. If you're reading in the King James Version, a desert place. This is an interesting word uh, that describes the place that Jesus wants them to go to to find rest. It's interesting for a few reasons. First of all, the word appears three times in this passage. It appears in verse 31 and 32 and again in verse 35, almost as a point of emphasis so as to remind us of the kind of place that they're going and where they end up. This is an isolated place, a desolate place. It's a place that's, that's not close to some of the amenities of, uh, of the nearby villages and that sort of thing. But second, this word is interesting because it's the same word in Mark's native tongue of Greek, eramos, which is used to describe the wilderness where John the Baptist ministered and where Jesus was tempted. That word eramos means wilderness, desolate place, desert place, isolated place. Hold on to that thought for just a moment. We'll come back to it in a little bit. Here's just a simple important reality that we need to understand as Jesus calls the disciples to go away to an isolated place to rest. We need to understand that we as human beings, like I need to tell you this, are not God. We are not all-powerful. We're not made by God to be all-powerful. We need to rest. And this is particularly important for ministry leaders, for pastors, for Sunday school teachers, for grow group leaders, for deacons, and people like these who serve in ministry areas within the body. Faithful sisters and brothers, you are not meant to serve the Lord's people nonstop with no break. We must take time, make time, To get away to a quiet place, an isolated place, a remote place, a desolate place where the burdens of ministry and service do not reach so that we might rest a while. An exhausted worker will not be a good worker and a servant of Christ who is weighed down by ministry without a break will at some point break under the load. Jesus calls those who carry the gospel to rest. Christian servant, I encourage you this morning, receive Jesus' invitation and allow yourself time to rest. Pastor, here I have to, sometimes I have to preach to myself, friends, you know that? You need to plan to use your vacation time. Make a habit not to check email on your days out of the office. Brother and sister who benefit from the ministry of these leaders, Sunday school teachers, grow group leaders, deacons, I encourage you, find ways to help your leaders rest. Offer to study hard, to take over leading a Bible study for a week or two. Maybe give a night of babysitting to your grow group leader so that she and her husband can have a night out together help those who need rest to rest. Our culture places a strange value on busyness, such that if you aren't always busy, people think you're lazy. It's the first thing that people, usually the the, the response when people ask, how are you doing? How was your week? Busy, busy. The word comes out of my mouth before I even, you know, actually think about the question. And, And that's the response that I get from so many other people. How are things going? Oh, busy. And it's like we have to say it to prove that we're not lazy or something. But Jesus doesn't call us to busyness. He calls us to intentional ministry for His name, for the sake of the gospel. But He also calls us to rest because we're not meant to do it in our own strength. All that aside, the reality of ministry is that it's a burden quite different from many other jobs and many other different roles of service. If Jesus saw fit to prescribe rest to His disciples, well, we who serve Him also would do well to fill that prescription. Jesus calls those who carry the gospel to rest. And as the passage goes on, we see that Jesus has compassion for the lost. Now, some of you who know me know that I'm an introvert at heart. Now, this doesn't mean that I don't like people. I do like people. I love you. But what it means as an introvert is that I'm energized by having time alone. That's where I recover to have the juice to be with people that I like and that I love. Some of you are the same way. Verses 33 and 34 are a nightmare for a tired introvert. Verse 33, now many saw them going, mind you, where are they going? They're going to rest. Many saw them going, recognized them, they ran there on foot from all the towns, got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. There's some blessed introvert among the 12 disciples who's going, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> These people. We, we, Jesus just said, hey, let's go across the lake to that quiet spot and have a break And some blessed saint among the disciples, maybe Bartholomew, I don't know anything about him, but I'm guessing he's saying, yes, Jesus, thank you. I'm so tired from these people. I need to lock myself in a closet for an hour just to get my stuff together. And then he looks up from the boat to the shore where they're about to land and he sees a crowd's already there. Are you kidding me? We've just been here and there all over your villages. We've been preaching and healing and casting out your demons. We haven't even had 15 minutes to park our rears to eat a snack, and you won't leave us alone. I'm telling you, if I were one of Jesus' disciples in this moment, I'd probably be having a nervous breakdown. But not Jesus. Here's what we need to remember. Jesus is not God dressed up in human disguise. The reality of the Incarnation is that the eternal Son of God, who is Himself God, added to His divine nature a fully human nature. Jesus was Himself not immune to being tired. He needed rest and sleep just like we do. And yet, when Jesus sees this crowd of people who won't even allow He and His disciples to rest, He doesn't see a nuisance, He doesn't see an inconvenience. He sees people without spiritual leadership. He sees, as Mark describes them, and Matthew does in his gospel also, sheep without a shepherd. Mark says that Jesus looked on them and had compassion on them. In Mark's vocabulary, this was a sort of gutsy affection for people. It's a word that Mark only uses of Jesus in his gospel, interestingly. It's a a gut-wrenching pity and love. I wonder if you've ever had a feeling like that. Someone's ever told you a story about someone or you've seen something happen that just it just knots you up inside with compassion for the one who's affected. Some of you know my wife Nikki works at public school and uh, she will sadly regularly come home telling me a story um, that just breaks my heart of a child who either came to school without lunch again for the fourth or fifth day in a row or about a kid who showed up with bruises today that weren't there yesterday or about a kid who says he doesn't want to go home. Or a little girl who says she'd rather, you know, mommy not come pick her up today, but daddy instead or someone else. And when Nikki tells these, these stories of these vulnerable children whose, whose lives are at danger, maybe at risk, maybe hurting, in great need, I just, it knots me up inside. This is the kind of compassion, the kind of pity that Jesus feels when he sees all of these people like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion for them. What is it that Jesus sees that that stirs him so deeply? He sees Jewish men without godly spiritual examples. He sees spiritually hungry people not being fed. He sees a crowd who are thirsty for truth and hope and God's grace, but who have no one to lead them to the cool waters of the gospel of life. And in this moment, where there's a real need for Jesus and the disciples to rest, where what they really need is to take a break, Jesus lets the crowd stay and he teaches them. He quenches their thirst for the love of God as he instructs with all gentleness. Tired and weary, Jesus gives a little bit more because he knows these men need the gospel. It is true that we need rest at times, friends. But Christian, it is equally important to remember that sometimes our need for rest can wait a while while we meet the greater need of getting the gospel to the lost when they're hungry and thirsty for it. Later in Mark's gospel, Jesus will remind the disciples, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Already here on this lakeside field, Jesus is giving of himself for the sake of the lost sheep of Israel. I point this out, Jesus' compassion for the lost, to remind us of two things. Number one, we have been loved by a great Savior. We have been loved by a great Savior. When Jesus was beaten, bleeding, weary, dying on the cross for sins, He didn't tap out, He didn't throw in the towel, He didn't call quits. He endured the the fullness of God's wrath against our sin for our sake so that the full penalty for our sin would be paid. He gave what He did not need to so that we could have what we could not earn. He looked on lost sinners with gut-churning pity and gave Himself without reservation for our rescue. We have been loved by a great Savior. Secondly, I say all this to remind you, you aren't Jesus. I'm not Jesus. We cannot give ourselves in the place of others for their salvation like Jesus does. We do need rest when ministry becomes taxing. But we need also to look on the lost with the same heart as our Savior. Let's be honest. It's easy to be exasperated by people who don't believe as we do or who are less mature in Christ than we are who are regularly insulting us, or asking us sarcastic questions so as to poke at our faith, or who just are are struggling to grow in maturity to Jesus. It's easy to be exasperated with folks like that. But thank God Jesus was not so put off by us, but instead loved us with love inexpressible. Brother or sister, have you known Christ in such a way that His love for you has made you more observant of the spiritual need around you? Has the love of Jesus transformed you to see sheep without a shepherd around you? Has His compassion for you, dear saint, once a sinner, has it increased your patience with those who are slow to believe? Has Christ's pity on you, brother Christian? Has it brought about gentleness of heart in you for those who are yet lost in sin? Has the gut-turning affection of Jesus for you brought about the same effect in your belly when you look on those who thirst for truth and grace and hope and forgiveness. Does your stomach turn in compassion for those who are yet without Jesus? Jesus had compassion for the lost. There's something to learn by his example here. Not that we can die for them, but oh, can we seek to love them as he did? Jesus calls those who carry the gospel to rest. He has compassion on the lost And finally, in this passage, as we get to the actual, the miraculous work that takes place here, we see that Jesus provides what men cannot. Jesus provides what men cannot. Jesus, doing what Jesus does, teaches these people until late in the day. Now, I promise you, I'm nowhere near the kind of teacher that Jesus was, but I'd be lying if I said I was never accused of being able to teach until the hour was late. Some of you have looked at your watch thinking, I've got lunch reservations at Applebee's, if you're making reservations at Applebee's, by the way, you don't know how Applebee's works. But like, when, is, when is he going to quit preaching? I've got to get to lunch. Jesus taught till late in the day when the people were real, real hungry. Now, with Jesus, you get quality and quantity of teaching. With me, at least you get quantity. But as the day winds on, the people are getting hungry. Jesus teaches till late in the afternoon. And the main meal of the day was coming around. It's time to eat. And the disciples recognized two things about What's going on? Number one, it's time to eat. Number two, the people got no food. So the disciples do the obvious thing. They tell Jesus, hey, send the people back out into the villages so that they can go buy something for dinner. We can pick it up again tomorrow. But Jesus has the audacity to turn it back on the disciples. He says, you give them something to eat. You see the need? You know they need food. You know the solution. Get food for them, so feed them. Come on, guys. But the disciples don't have the means to meet this need, obviously. It would take seven months of wages, 200 denarii, 200 days wages to feed these people. And the assumption is that the disciples don't have this money readily at hand to go buy food. So Jesus does an equally weird thing. He says, well, how much food do you have? And they take an inventory and they find that they have five small flatbreads and a couple of fish, probably salted or dried fish, the equivalent of one person's sack lunch. They aren't, these aren't big sourdough loaves that y'all were cooking during COVID. I mean, just little flatbreads you'd carry with you. One person's sack lunch, that's what we got, Jesus. So he says, all right, as all the people sit down in an orderly way by hundreds and by fifties, and they do, and he does what any father or family patriarch would do before eating, He lifts His head to heaven and He blesses the food, probably praying what every Jewish father prayed before dinner. Blessed art Thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth food from from the earth, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. And then He breaks the bread and He begins, tears the bread and begins having the disciples distribute the food to the crowd. Everyone takes, everyone eats, everyone is full to bursting, and the disciples go around and pick up a basket each full of leftovers. And here's the kicker, we're told that the crowd numbered 5,000 men. We're not sure if women and children were present or not, but that hardly matters for the point. Jesus has done the impossible. He has fed a multitude from the equivalent of one sack lunch. Now, some object to this miracle story. Some, from a modern and scientific perspective, look at this parable and say that such a miracle was impossible. It's not possible to take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. That in reality, some will argue that this isn't the record of a miracle, but it's just it's a fabled story in the life of Jesus. Some will argue that what was really happening was that Jesus inspired the crowd to share from the meager provisions that they had brought with them, and that as He taught them the goodness of sharing with one another, they all just opened their lunches and shared with everybody and everyone was filled. Others often offer an even more radical explanation, saying that there were some good and pious women who loved Jesus that Jesus conspired with to stash away fish and bread in a nearby cave. And after blessing the food, he went and stood over near an opening to the cave where no one could see. And the, and the ladies were, were, were feeding him bread, and he's just passing it out to the disciples. This is a this is serious theory about what some have offered as to how Jesus did this. Now, I find both of these explanations lacking for what, for what, to, to explain what really happened. On the hidden food in a cave notion... You are all laughing. It's silly on its face. Let's move on to the other one. It's just I mean, that, that's just it's so far-fetched that it strains reality. There's, there's no reasonable evidence that, to think that Jesus has stashed away food for 5,000 people in a cave. Anyway. And on the other point, that this was just a lesson about sharing, that they took this event in Jesus' life and turned it into a fable to teach people that it's good to share. We have to contend with the fact that this miracle story is recorded with striking similarity by each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Beside Jesus' death and resurrection, this is the only other event that's recorded by all four gospel writers. And in none of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is there even a hint that this is some mere fable meant to teach people to share. Nowhere does Mark hint at that. Nowhere does Matthew or Luke hint at that. Nowhere does John hint at that. In every place, this is an event that points to Jesus' divine ability to do the impossible on a grand scale for people who have no means of meeting their own need. This is a real miracle. My friends, understand that this event is but one more entry in the growing file of evidence in favor of Mark's claim at the beginning of this biography of Jesus that He is in fact the Christ, the Son of God, the very one who will not only do the impossible thing of feeding a great multitude when they had no means of doing so for themselves, but that He is the Messiah who will provide salvation from sin and righteousness with God for people who had no hope of achieving it for themselves. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 8-11, through 11, he says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. And more than that also we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Jesus feeds the multitude in an impossible way as, as, as a demonstration of His ability to meet the need of righteousness for an innumerable multitude by the giving of His own body on the cross. We all have an impossible need. Not for bread and fish, but need for forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to our holy Creator. Christ only has provided for us what sinful men could not provide for ourselves. And not only for a few of us, no, but for everyone who would repent and believe. Jesus doesn't just save those who He likes, he saves all those who call on Him in faith. His death is not effective for just a small group, but for all who will believe. He has done an impossible thing. We see in this passage that Jesus calls those who carry the gospel to rest. He has compassion on the lost, and He does the impossible in an impossible way, proving His divinity in a way that points to ultimately His salvation. On the cross but all of these things these this description of what jesus is doing here in this desert place all of this is in service to mark's bigger question in the gospel what is mark's bigger question in the gospel the question is who is this jesus every every bit of everything that's happening in this passage is in service to this who is jesus that's why mark is writing this has been the theme of his gospel, of his biography of Jesus. And it's the theme of this event, too. The feeding of the multitude is not just here to tell us that we need rest. It's not here just to tell us that Jesus sees the lost, though he does. And it's not here to just, just to tell us that he does the impossible, though this passage does tell us all that. It does tell us we do need rest. It does tell us that Jesus loves the lost. It does tell us that Jesus can do the impossible. But this scene identifies Jesus for us biblically, too. That is to say, it tells us who Jesus is as the Messiah, as the Christ, in the most important and fulfilling of ways. We see in this scene echoes of Old Testament promises through, through, all throughout this passage. What We're hearing old stuff in the life of Jesus. We hear, first of all, the echo of a prophet who's greater than Moses. It's interesting, isn't it, that this event happens in a desolate place, in a wilderness place, The Greek word for desolate place, for wilderness, is the Greek word we said, eramos. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word midbar. The word midbar in Hebrew describes the wilderness place where God took his people after they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. It was the place that God took them to rest before getting to the promised land. An innumerable multitude, the Israelites, there in the wilderness, grumbled to Moses for lack of what was it again? Oh, right, bread. And to address their grumbling and to soothe their bellies, what did God give them in the wilderness, in that desolate place? He gave them bread, manna. And as a reminder that man lives not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, the Lord prevented them from keeping leftovers of manna in the wilderness. They were to collect it fresh day by day. When Moses was preparing this leader of Israel in the wilderness when he was preparing for his eventual death he said to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you from your brothers it is to him you shall listen and earlier in numbers 27 Verses 15 and 17, Moses prayed to God saying, Let the Lord, the God of, spirit, uh, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Are you hearing the echoes? Here, in a desolate place, a great multitude received bread. And leftovers from a prophet greater than Moses who sees a people who need a shepherd. Mark is telling us this Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, he's not just some new prophet on the scene. This is the promised prophet better than Moses who will lead the people so that they won't be like sheep without a shepherd. And on that point, Mark is also telling us that Jesus is the divine shepherd. The prayer of Moses points to this. Lord, give them a man to lead the congregation so they won't be like sheep that have no shepherd. The prayer of Moses is anticipating this messianic prophet figure who will lead the people. And the word of God to the prophet Ezekiel confirms it, that Jesus is, as he calls himself in John 10, the good shepherd. In Ezekiel's day, Old Testament prophet, five to six hundred years before Jesus was born, the Lord spoke through Ezekiel, condemning the shepherds of Israel, their their priests, their religious leaders, because they had abused the people and used them for their own personal fattening. They used the people to grow rich and, and wealthy and fat and sassy. And God promised through Ezekiel in Ezekiel 34, He said, listen, verse 11, behold, I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I'll rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. I will feed them in good pasture, the Lord says. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. Jesus has compassion on the crowd. Why? Because he sees sheep without a shepherd. Mark tells us, by what Jesus does, that Jesus is this very shepherd. God himself who rescues his sheep when their human shepherds have left them in danger. He gathers them. He feeds them in green grass, good pastures, and he nourishes their souls. Jesus is the good shepherd, as he says in John 10, who gives his life, he lays his life down for his sheep. The one who has authority to lay his life down and authority to raise it up again. He is the Lord who is the shepherd of the psalmist. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Jesus is the personification, the incarnation of that divine promised shepherd, Mark is telling us. This isn't just some guy with shepherdy aspirations. This is the shepherd we've been waiting for. Mark tells us also that not only is He the prophet better than Moses, not only is He the divine shepherd, but also He's the Messiah who prepares a feast in His restful presence. He's the promised deliverer who prepares a feast in His restful presence. In Isaiah 55, God issues through His prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born, He issues a call to hear His Word and respond in faith. If you haven't spent time reading through Isaiah 55 and just meditating on it and how all that it says is fulfilled in Jesus, I encourage you, go do that this week. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2 start this way. The Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food, God says. Here in this desert place, Jesus, the prophet better than Moses, the divine shepherd, lays out a feast for a multitude who have neither bread nor money to buy it. He fills their bellies with bread after filling their souls with his word, teaching until late in the day. And all at once we are reminded that this same Messiah is coming again to invite those who have believed him to another great feast, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that great day of rejoicing when Jesus will return to gather all that he has saved by his grace to feast with him in the rest of our new home as he makes this world new. Jesus is the Messiah Who gives us, who lays out a feast for his people in his restful presence. Friend, understand what Mark wants us to understand in this text. More than rest, more than learning, more than food, we need Jesus. Dear tired pastor and ministry leader, dear weary parent, when you're burned out and you have nothing left of your own wisdom, to give to the married couple in trouble or the growing Christian or your rebellious son or daughter, give them Jesus. And you weary parent and servant, when you long for rest but cannot find it, remind yourself to run to Jesus. In the desert place of weariness, He is your wisdom and your rest. More than rest, you need Jesus. When you look at the hurt the brokenness of the world, and your gut is wrenched over the pain that you see, over the need that you see at every turn. Remember, no one has loved the lost and broken like Jesus. You cannot fix the problems you see, not permanently, but Christ has all power to redeem all that is broken. You're not called yourself to be the chief shepherd of lost souls, but only as a sheep who has been found by him to bring the lost to good pasture under the care of Christ. More than fixing the world's problems, we need to take people, bring people to Jesus to be healed. My very good friend, you who wrestle with the longing to be free of the guilt of past sins, but you know that nothing that you can do, nothing you do can erase the past, I invite you, come to Jesus. He will not change your past, but He will remove the guilt of your sin. He'll declare you innocent of all rebellion against God, and He will change your future. Jesus has accomplished the impossible for you. Even now as you stand, an enemy to God in your sin, Christ's death for your sins and His resurrection is sufficient. It is enough to reconcile you to God today. His gift of salvation is only effective, though, for those who turn from their sin and believe Him, who trust Him to do what, they, what cannot be done for themselves, not just to feed me when I ain't got no food, but to save me when I have no hope of saving myself. Oh, Jesus is so much more than a mighty miracle worker and a loving teacher. He's the leader that's greater than Moses, who gives abundant provision in desolate places. He's the shepherd for all lost sheep who hear his voice and come to him for pasture. He's the Messiah who prepares a feast and a home forever for multitudes from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Listen to him. Believe on him satisfy the hunger pangs of your soul by feasting on Jesus in faith, and then, by God, give him in all his sufficiency to others. Jesus is the good shepherd, the divine shepherd, who gives to people, who does for people what they cannot do for themselves. Not just the impossibility of bread in the wilderness, not anything as little or silly as that, but salvation from death and separation from God by giving his own life in our place. Rest in him. Be fed by him. Be saved by him. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of response as we worship God in light of what his word has taught us. And I invite you today. You need to come to Jesus in faith uh, today. Make today the day of salvation for you. I'll be here at the front. Come grab me, even as we're singing in, in response. Let's talk today about how you can have assurance of your salvation through faith in Jesus, how you can come to know Him as the great shepherd of your soul. Friend, do you have sins you need to repent of? you need to confess to God? There's nothing magical of, uh, about these steps, about this altar space, but sometimes it's good to just get up and move and come kneel down in prayer before the Lord and say, God, I confess these are my sins. Forgive me. Give me new grace today to walk in holiness. Christian, if you need to repent of known sin in your life today, come do that this morning. Come to Jesus who takes your sins, nailed it to the cross, and offers you not just salvation, but also sanctification by the power of His Spirit. Let's respond to this wonderful truth that Jesus is the divine shepherd who feeds His sheep in abundance, who cares for those who cannot care for themselves. Let's worship Him today. Will you pray with me?